0: Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. taconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines and Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale, seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com.
1: Hello, I'm Ben Baldanza. Thanks for tuning in for your weekly fill of airline news. I'm joined, as always, by Chris Chimes. Hey, Chris.
2: Howdy, Ben. Another busy week and a good discussion coming up with Roger Dow from U.S. Travel. But first, a few news items to cover off, so let's buckle up. Uh, We're going to start with the relaxation of U.S. inbound travel rules for international travel that went into effect on November 8th. We'll talk more about this with Roger in a few minutes, but we saw some pretty quick market reaction. Delta says they've seen international bookings surge 450%. And they also announced the restoration of 22 international routes, including a dozen to Europe. United started to flex a bit with new routes and frequencies from Newark, Dulles, Chicago, and Denver. All definitely good to see. But like the United ads, Ben, it seems like the Delta ads seem to be tilted mostly to leisure
1: travel. You know, that's what it looked like to me too, Chris. And that's not surprising. While the industry had a very busy summer that was virtually all leisure travel, what was really missing from that travel were all of the international visitors that come to the U.S., go to Disney, go to our national parks play golf on our golf courses, do all the things that are fun to do in this country. And when they come, they stay for a while and they spend a lot of money. And we had a lot of people flying this summer, but that large group of customers were almost completely absent. Even from Canada, you couldn't come in this summer to the U.S. So the opening of people from Canada to come here again and Europe to come here again is a really big deal for the industry. That said, because you can now travel from those places into the US again, doesn't mean that all the reasons we've talked about business travel coming back or not have changed, meaning that the dynamics that are driving what might be a permanent change in the structure of business travel, we don't know yet, and there are people on all sides of that debate about what's really happening with business travel. But that is not resolved, nor is it necessarily helped significantly by allowing international travelers to come to the U.S. again. Certainly, it could a little bit. But I think what we see in the Delta and United ads is sort of a recognition of It's great these markets are being open to the U.S. again, but we're not counting on the fact that there's going to be a lot of long-haul business quite yet. So let's focus these, like we focused a lot of our U.S. capacity, on more leisure-oriented kind of routes. And certainly, if these airlines see a pickup in business travel, from London, Paris, you know, Frankfurt and Amsterdam, big places of business in Europe, then I think you'll see them quickly adding more frequency back to what look more like business markets. But when they're betting now where the capacity is going to work, leisure has been where the industry has been since people started flying again in the pandemic. And it doesn't look like airlines are thinking that's going to change for a while.
2: I think that's fair. I think the other thing I'm interested in watching in this kind of airline Game of Thrones thing is, you know, we've talked about a lot of U.S. carriers put wide bodies and bigger aircraft into leisure markets, into Florida and Mexico and sunny, warm places. And so as these wide body aircraft start migrating off of some of those routes, what are going to be the opportunities for these new entrants like Breeze and Avello? How Spirit and JetBlue and other ULCCs is going to respond? Are there going to be opportunities created as the big carriers move back to international markets? So it's going to take a while to cycle this through, but there clearly are going to be more opportunities for a lot of, a lot of carriers in different kinds of ways as international travel comes back.
1: I think that's right, Chris. The reason that these airlines have those big wide body airplanes is not to fly to Orlando or Vegas as a regular thing, right? Right. It may make sense on occasion or as the tag end of a trip coming from a longer destination, but they buy those planes to fly long haul routes Mm -hmm. into Europe, into Asia, into deep South America and so on. And they've had no place to fly these airplanes for a while. And I'm sure that the planners at these airlines are excited about Being able to redeploy this big equipment back into markets that are really made for that kind of equipment and resizing the domestic markets. That doesn't completely mean that they might be reducing capacity in all these US leisure markets, though. You could take a wide body that was flying to Orlando and Vegas and replace it with a couple of narrow body frequencies and maybe keep the seat count the same. So, I'm not sure that it automatically means more opportunity for the low-cost carriers in the U.S., but my guess is your intuition is right. And the more that these airlines can fly internationally, fill their domestic airplanes with international travelers that connect in through the big hubs in the U.S., then they're likely to create more opportunities for the low-cost carriers in the U.S. I think you're right, but it's not certain that that'll be the case.
2: So let's go from international to a conversation about regional service in the U.S., Ben. United announced that they're dropping service to 11 small markets served out of Houston, Denver, and Chicago. Last year, we saw route cuts to smaller markets amidst the mayhem of covid But now as airline travel continues to rebound, what do you make of this announcement? I know that one news item doesn't make a trend, but is it a signal?
1: I'm not sure if it is, Chris. It might be. It's certainly a signal of one thing, that United is serious about wanting to make money and not willing to support routes that financially maybe haven't covered their cost of capital. And that's what good airlines do. Right. Airlines announce new service with a lot of fanfare and they pull out of markets sort of quietly. Right. And, um, and so schedulers and planners are always sorting the network and common slides that you see in organizational meetings and even at board meetings are top 10 routes, worst 10 routes, things like that. And, um, so my guess is this is a, It's sort of a cleanup a bit, stations that weren't covering their costs, smaller stations. I would also point out that it's kind of consistent with United's fleet strategy, where they're in the process of replacing their smaller regional jets with larger 737 and Airbus kind of equipment. Those planes haven't all come in yet, so I'm not saying this is tied directly to that. But they clearly have a strategy of upgauging, flying bigger planes. So as they're looking at their network, they're saying, what are the markets that just don't really have enough demand in our network to justify keeping them open when we see what where people are traveling today, and when we look at our fleet and know which planes are going away and which ones are coming in. So I saw it as a positive sign for United being proactive on their network. It's obviously not great news for the towns that are losing the United service. But I also noticed in most of the announcement, it's, it talked about that Delta and American Regional still serve these places. So I don't think these places are falling off the... U.S. airline route maps completely. It's just that United is saying, I'm going to optimize my hubs and some of these things just don't fit in anymore.
2: Yeah, over the course of my career, I've written plenty of press releases and marketing documents about airline networks and alliances and how important it is to get from get you from Flagstaff to Frankfurt um, and Dubuque to Dubai um, and know no criticism of Flagstaff or Dubuque or any smaller community, but maybe it's not critical to get you from Flagstaff to Frankfurt. So as you strive to make money, you got to look at, like you said, what's covering cost of capital and what makes sense uh, for your network moving forward. Before we cover off some more news, our thanks to Seabury Capital Group. This specialty finance and investment group boasts a 25-year track record in aviation, aerospace, and defense. In financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology and solutions, and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com.
1: And TA Connections partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. They monitor and track room utilization to ensure that you get the most out of the rooms you buy and you only pay for what was consumed, which means enhanced operations and a true savings to your organization. Learn more at TAConnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management.
2: Ben, one last news item before we get to Roger Dow. Uh, After watching the rather spectacular collapse of GE over the last two decades, the company announced their breakup into three smaller companies focused on healthcare, energy, and aviation. Uh, That was this past week. Do you think this news is good for the airline industry?
1: I think it is, Chris. Chris. I saw the CEO of GE this week on TV and he was talking about this breakup. And one of the things he focused on was the way each of these divisions could better focus on what they see as fast growing and highly important sectors in the U.S. So he talked about how energy is changing into more reusable energy and how GE could become a real player in that space and a real innovator in that space. And in healthcare, all the changes going on and all the ways GE participated today. And then in aviation, they obviously play a big role in making great engines, also supporting leasing in the industry, although some of that has been parsed out. And they're a big player in aviation today, but Aviation competes today with healthcare, energy, and other things GE does. So I think by breaking these things into separate companies, I think it will allow GE to compete better in each of these verticals, in a sense. And since they'll have an aviation-dedicated company, they're not going to be fighting with resources People or even capital potentially with non aviation kind of things, I think that will allow them to be more aggressive, more innovative, and ultimately carve out a bigger role than GE has had in the last number of years in aviation. They're clearly a very important company in aviation today. And I think this change suggests they want to be more important for the industry.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I have to wonder over the years how much their profitability. In aviation has been sucked into supplementing other parts of the business that weren't doing as well. So having a focused aviation unit that they can reinvest in and innovate and and not be bothered with this conglomerate that was struggling for so long is probably good for aviation and also bringing new products to market and driving their competitors to be better as well. Well, we'll be right back with our conversation with Roger Dow.
1: But first, Chris, a reminder that Clear makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear, and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's home-to-gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear.
2: It's my distinct pleasure to welcome this week's guest, Roger Dow, the president and CEO of the U.S. Travel Association. Roger, welcome to Airlines Confidential.
3: It's good to be with you both. Thank you.
2: You've had a busy couple of weeks uh, leading up to the opening up of international borders, but leading up to even that, that, it's been busy months and months. We always like to start these conversations before we get into the meat of the conversation with a self-introduction. So tell our listeners a little bit about your role and U.S. Travel's mission.
3: Sure. I head up a group called the U.S. Travel Association, which is a trade association that represents the whole of the travel industry. So if you look at our members, it's all the airlines, the hotel companies, the theme parks like Disney and Universal, the payment systems, distribution like Expedia and Sabre and a lot of the state tourism offices and three or four hundred cities like the Convention and Visitors Bureaus. And we exist for only one reason, and that's to grow travel both to and within the United States. So the other associations for hotels and airlines, you know, worry about landing fees and uh, regulations. We, our whole focus is to get people traveling and more people traveling and working with the government to try and get them not to do things that are detrimental to travel, which sometimes happens.
1: Well, that's great, Roger. Let's start with the big news of the week that Chris just talked about, the formal lifting of travel restrictions for inbound vaccinated international travelers. We know that all of you at U.S. Travel have been working on that for quite a while. Tell us how the sausage got made on this one. I imagine a lot of government agencies, a lot of industry perspective, and lots of obstacles, too. How do you get something like this done? Where was the axis of power and decision-making?
3: Well, you're right on that. November 8th, uh, we finally opened uh, the U.S. government to all countries uh, for vaccinated travelers, as as you've said. And it was a long time coming. Uh, The challenge that I always thought is that we had uh, UK, uh, Canada, the EU would let Americans come there months ago that were vaccinated, yet we wouldn't let them come here. And when you think about it, uh, we're uh, we're probably, as a country, 75% vaccinated And we're talking about bringing people in that are one hundred percent vaccinated. So I keep saying to the government, these people are healthier from a vaccination standpoint than the people in your own city. But the sausage making is exactly what happens, Ben, in D.C. And you know that it's uh, you've got to pull together the State Department, Homeland Security, Commerce Department, Department of Transportation. All have to work together to make this happen. And also the uh, the what I call the the COVID czar. Jeff Zeitz, a good, good guy, friend of mine, and get them all to agree. And and the challenge is politicians are risk adverse. So while you and I would look at it and say, Hey, it's safe. Airline travel is one of the safest things to do in the world. They're very afraid of taking a a step that would cause criticism from any uh, area. So we finally got them to agree, but this was the uh, secretary of commerce was a huge help in this. She's terrific. Uh, but to bring the others on board took a long time. And what we did is we had a multi-layered approach. We had all of our members, we had CEOs, the biggest CEOs in the billion dollar plus uh, write letters. We did grassroots campaigns and just kept banging away at them to finally they said, uncle, and let's open up uh, international.
2: So obviously a podcast called Airlines Confidential is focused on the airline business, but this decision touches the travel sector and the broader U.S. economy in many ways. So can you elaborate why this is so important?
3: Yeah, it's it's so important because the travel industry is is so big. Uh, in 2019, it was $2.6 uh, trillion, up at the T, $2.6 trillion. But more important is the number of people employees. So we're, we're a very labor-intensive industry. You know, I, I was just on a flight yesterday and I was looking at, I was just counting the number of people that had to get on the f- flight. You know, a couple of pilots, you know, between the flight attendants, between the, the gate people, and it's a lot of people. So one in 10 people get their jobs from travel. So that's why it's very important. And also from an airline perspective, uh, hotels have been coming back uh, pretty much from a leisure standpoint. But the airlines are so dependent on business travel, international conventions, and those those areas have been very slow to come back. So that's why it's extremely important. And uh, when you really think about it, international makes up 15% of all the visitors to the United States, but they spend a lot of money. Uh, we've lost $300 billion through the pandemic from lo- lo- loss of international travel.
1: Wow, that's an amazing impact. So what international regions are you expecting to rebound the fastest with regard to international visitors to the U.S.? And as far as spending... Are there differences in economic impact with regard to any certain geographies and those residents who come visit here?
3: Sure, Ben. When you look at it, the big players right away will be UK, the EU, and uh, Canada. Uh, there, there'll be the big three that will be coming. The Canadians come here, the snowbirds, they all want to come this winter. I live in St. Petersburg, Florida, and uh, around... Uh, Thanksgiving time, you see all the lights go on on the condos as all the Canadians and Germans and international folks come to the U.S., uh, to Florida, California, places like that. Uh, so I think those three are going to be big. Canada is a huge market for us. You're, you're talking over 20 million visitors a year. Slower to come back, though, are going to be Asia and Australia. I mean, like, Australia is like locked down, has been and uh, bring back Asia. The the problem with Asia is the Chinese, if they come here, they've got quarantine when they go back. So they're not that excited about coming here uh, right at the moment. Uh, We talk about spending, the international visitors spend so much more that you and I, when we travel, on average, probably American travelers travel on average about two or three days. That's because it's business trips mixed with the leisure. International travelers come and they stay 14 to 16 nights Uh, So they come for a long time. and They spend a lot of money. Put it in perspective, the average international traveler spends about $4,500 per person per trip. But you get Brazilians probably spend over five, five and a half, uh, 5,500. And the Chinese are the biggest spenders. The Chinese, a lot of business travelers, they spend up to $7,000 per person. So you can see this travel is very, very important from an economic standpoint because they spend a lot of money. It's not just on hotels and airlines, but they, man, the stuff that they buy at the shops and the retail and the upscale uh, shops is uh, really, really big.
2: Let's get back to aviation a second. From your perspective, can the aviation infrastructure in the U.S. handle this quick rebound, whether airports or Customs and Border Patrol, TSA, and other law enforcement resources? Do you think we're ready
3: you know, that's a really good question. Uh, the I, we kept trying to explain, and we work very closely with all the airlines, uh, obviously, a Four and Air. To try and explain to the administration, you just don't flip a light switch and start international travel. You know, the airlines got to bring. Jets back into play that have been, you know, haven't been used in the past year and a half. They've got to reschedule crews. They've got to set their whole reservation system up. They've got to get their pricing. I mean, this you just don't switch the light switch. That's why we told the administration we needed a date specific, which ended up being uh, November the eighth. But they announced it in September. Uh, are the airlines ready? they're starting to be ready. They're bringing back uh, people and uh, aircraft as quickly as possible. It's gonna be a little slow, I think the first couple of months, but they'll be up and going and and be ready. My bigger concern is the capability of TSA and uh, the Customs and Border Protection, the CBP as they call it, of the people who go through when they first come to the country. Uh, they don't have the uh, enough people right now to handle this huge surge we're going to get and then you look at the vaccine thing where potentially they some could be out of work and uh, that's going to aggravate the thing And lastly the biggest problem we have is countries where you need a visa which uh, we have 39 visa waiver countries so that's mostly EU, Australia, Japan, etc you don't need a visa you can come with just your passport but countries like in South America, Brazil, China, Mexico, you need a visa. And the problem is with our embassies being closed where you get your visa, the the wait times to get a visa could be up to 14 months. So that is going to be the biggest inhibiting factor is we've got to get the government to figure out a better way of issuing visas and getting back up to speed, or it's going to be a lot slower seeing those folks from the visa countries uh, coming back to the US.
2: We'll be right back with our conversation with Roger Dow from the US Travel Association. Pratt & Whitney is a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. Pratt & Whitney has the broadest and deepest experience in all forms of aircraft propulsion. To learn more about their 95 years of innovation and how they power the future of flight, visit PrattWhitney.com.
1: Well, let's get back to our interview with Roger Dow from U.S. Travel. Roger, while we talk every week about how the pandemic has impacted aviation, Can you give us a sense of the broader impact on hospitality and travel and tourism? Is it accurate to say that airlines have fared maybe somewhat better than hotels or restaurants?
3: No, it's not. Actually, the airlines have gotten hurt more than any other sector of the industry. Uh, Maybe cruise lines, I say, worse. But the airlines have really taken on the brunt, as I said, because you don't have the, the business travel, the meetings, the conventions, international, which is where they really make the big money. Now, domestic travel has been pretty good, uh, but even domestic travel, hotels are down about 7%. Hotels have been doing really well because you've got the drive market, but the airlines through pandemic have been down like 24%. The, the big problem has been unemployment. Uh, we've got 17 million people in the travel industry. you take airlines and everyone together. Uh, in May, half of them were unemployed. To put that in perspective, the Great Depression, the worst year of the Great Depression was 1933. And it was 26% of Americans out of work. That means this was twice as bad as the Great Depression for the airline industry and for workers. And it was just a real problem. It's coming back now, but the airlines, I would say, have disproportionately, uh, right after the cruise lines, uh, had the biggest losses.
2: Roger, you've touched a bit about business travel and specifically business uh, conventions and conferences, which are an important part of business travel, obviously, both domestic and international. What's your outlook for the convention and conference business in 2022?
3: What's well, interesting, when you when you talk to the economists, uh, the economists are saying that business travel and international are not gonna come back till 2024 or 2025, like the weathermen, uh i think they're wrong uh, i think it's going to come back more quickly than we think and i base that on after september 11th people said no one would get on an air carrier to cross the o- ocean again a fear of terrorists and came back a year later a couple of years later is the biggest international travel decade that they've had after uh the recession they said it would, a third of the hotels in america would never open again wrong 10 of the biggest years we've ever had as a travel industry so it, it's got to come back, but we put business travel, let's put it in perspective. Business travel represents probably 20% of all the visitors. Uh, domestic is really big and a lot of them they drive and things like that. But that 20% makes up 40 to 60% of all the revenue. So if you're in, especially in the cities, in New York City, uh, LA, San Francisco, Chicago, Dallas, Miami, these they really depend on business travel. So. It's, it's had a monster impact, but I'm optimistic that it's, optimism it's gonna come back faster than people think. We've got two or three problems, headwinds. The one headwind is that chief financial officers are sitting right now in their offices saying at the boardroom, why do we want these people to travel? Look at how much profit we've made during the pandemic and they didn't go to meetings and they didn't travel. Maybe they shouldn't travel. Then you've got the general counsel chimes in and says, boy, do we wanna push our people to get back on the road again? What if someone gets sick? What if their spouse sues us? Maybe we don't want to do that. So we've got those headwinds. And then the third headwind is a lot of offices aren't opening. So I want to go see someone uh, in New York or somewhere, and they say, sorry, but our office isn't open. I'm still working from home. So you put those three together, it's going to be slower to come back. But when it does, it's going to come back much faster. What happened after 2008 is some people said, we're not going to get back on the road again. And those that did never looked back. They stole market share from the competitors because when you're face to face, even though it's fun talking to you guys on a podcast, it's much better, as you know, when we see each other face to face. So those that get together face to face end up getting the business and the other people scramble to try and reclaim their market share.
1: That's a great point, Roger. Well, U.S. Travel recently hosted its first ever Future of Travel Mobility Conference in a discussion on innovation and sustainable travel, including some major voices in the aviation sector. Who was there and what were the key takeaways? What role will US travel play in shaping this discussion moving forward?
3: Well, I think it's really important that we we look at the future of travel just as the U.S. economy was really built by the growth of the highway system and the airlines back from the 60s, it, it, it's what really made our economy grow. And now we've got to look at the future. And uh, we had some big players there. We had uh, Ed Bastion was there from the CEO of Delta. Uh, Mark Royce, who is the uh, president of General Motors was there. But we had some really uh, interesting people, Virgin Hyperloop. They got a tube that shoots people at 600 miles an hour uh, through a tunnel. And I'm not sure I want to be the first one on that, but uh, they've got that. But also, you know, what's coming back is supersonic. There's a group called Boom. And and this is not just, uh, you know, the Concorde. They're, they've now figured out a way to go supersonic uh, through the U.S. And it, it's not a dream. These these aircraft exist. United has already ordered 15 of them and they've got another order for a potential 35 more of supersonic carriers. So you begin looking at that and you start saying when you go across country in two hours or or go to London in two and a half hours, totally changes the game. Uh, The other thing I think is important is we've got to get technology to speed up. We can't go through airports with TSA looking at driver's licenses, trying to figure if that's Ben or Chris or Roger. We've got to get facial recognition, biometrics. And the other thing is sustainability. Uh, There's a whole group of, of, of Americans are saying, hey, are you sustainable? And the airlines have really done a pretty good job of sustainability. I don't think that the public knows that. And I think we've got to talk more about what was done, but we've got to keep doing more. And uh, that's going to be so important because you've got a younger generation that's pushing hard on the sustainability thing. And uh, But when you look at it, it's a heck of a lot more sustainable to fly 150 people to Chicago than have 150 people drive to Chicago. And I think we just got to tell our story a lot better.
2: Somewhat related to that, Roger, uh, Congress recently passed the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. After Just a bit of melodrama. That's going to have a profound impact on the way people travel for decades to come as well. What are some of the bill's measures that drew the support of U.S. travel?
3: Well, you know, we've been talking about improving our infrastructure for decades, and they just keep kicking the can down the road. And the longer you wait, the more expensive it gets. And you know, they talk about bridges and roads, but it's also about improving the infrastructure for air, uh, and improving the uh, security systems, improving the technology that we have. Uh, talking about airports, uh, there's a. 30 some billion dollars dollars—it's gonna go into our airports. We've gotta get our airports more modernized. Uh, there's money going towards helping the air travel control system, towards electric vehicle charging. All these things are important. As I say, it's no bill is perfect. I mean, I you know, there's a lot of junk in there that uh, shouldn't have been in the infrastructure bill. But the bottom line is there's hundreds of billions of dollars that are really going to make a difference on in infrastructure. And the challenge is if you can't have a, an efficient infrastructure, you can't have travel. I once uh, had someone from Myrtle Beach say, I don't compete with Virginia Beach. He said, I compete with the infrastructure, the ability to fly people to my city or their road system." So it's an inhibitor. Uh, We find that people are deciding, you know, whether to fly or drive for a trip that might be a three or four hour trip. And unless we can be more efficient with our airports, our airlines, getting people on and off planes, turning them around, that's a problem. So this infrastructure bill is going to be a huge help. And one of the big pluses is we work very hard on this. We got a, a person called the chief travel and tourism officer added to the Department of Transportation. And Why is that important? We need somebody at transportation that's talking up for travel and talking for all aspects of travel. Air is truly important and critical, but we need somebody to set the priorities of these people because government's not very good at putting priorities together and what to do. And we really need the voice of the industry to guide all this money and make sure it's spent in the right place.
1: Well, Roger, I'm excited about your optimism for the future and the very buoyant and exciting view of how travel is going to rebound strong after this pandemic. So as we wrap up, can you tell us how you feel specifically about the next 12 months? And what is what can we realistically expect for 2022?
3: I think what you're going to see for 2022 2022- is business travel will begin coming back in the first quarter, but I think second and third quarter are going to be quite strong. You're going to get a big burst of international. Let's hope there's not the lines. I'm very worried about uh, the ability to get people through airports in the short term for the holidays and all of that. But once we get the act together, that means government and private sector work together. I am much more optimistic than, as I say, the economists. Just like the folks in the weather, they're often wrong, uh, but no one holds them to it. But I, I think it's going back faster if we don't have travel. And the other thing to think about, lastly, is travel is not just about um, the airlines and the hotels and all that. But nothing happens in the world until someone takes a trip. Where your kids go to school, you go travel there. Where you relocate your company, where you're going to buy a second home. All that starts with travel. It's the fulcrum for our developing our, our travel economy and our U.S. economy and jobs.
2: Roger, in this short conversation, you have demonstrated why you're such an an effective advocate for the travel industry and why you've got so many fans across the sector. So uh, we appreciate your joining us and sharing your thoughts with our listeners. I'm certain they're going to enjoy this conversation.
3: Well, thanks, Ben. And thanks, Chris. You're good friends, and I appreciate it anytime.
1: Thanks very much, Roger. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential.
0: Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net. The hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. The archive.net is now boarding.
1: Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and thanks again to Roger Dow. As always, I'm really impressed with what U.S. travel is doing and how optimistic they view the future of the industry. I love that optimism and share it with Roger. Now it's time for listener questions. Remember, you can leave a question on our voicemail at 202-964-0177. Or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Chris, our first question is from Andy in Fort Worth, Texas. Guys, if you don't cover it in your news roundup, I'd be interested in your thoughts about this announcement of a capital raise By current aviation to start a U.S.-based airline to serve small markets. They talk about a $40 million capital raise, but no plans to acquire aircraft. Yet they are calling it an airline. Is it? Chris, what do you know about these guys?
2: Well, Andy, thanks for writing in. And this announcement is proof that you're truly an airline geek. If you noticed it, it kind of came in under the radar a bit. They're a group out of Texas. They announced that they've hired a investment bank to raise forty million dollars, and to connect smaller cities with service. But there's no plan like Andy writes in to acquire aircraft. I tried to do some a little more digging. I, I frankly am not quite sure of what the business plan is. Ben, you and I know some of the folks involved, and we certainly want to see them succeed. I guess I would just um, feel better if I knew that they were farther along in the capital raise or had raised a portion of the $40 million. I don't know if $40 million is enough, but maybe it is for basically whatever it is they're going to be doing. But certainly by the time they get to the investor conversations, they have a little more uh, specific of a plan is one of my thoughts uh, based on, you know, 10 minutes of, 10 minutes of research about what they're trying to do.
1: I think that's right, Chris, whether, More small markets need service. I mean, we just talked about United pulling out of some small markets. So does that create an opportunity for a new airline in the U.S.? I'm not sure. And there was just a lot of vague kind of language in this. So my sense is, Andy, that this is a little premature to start talking about what current aviation is thinking. But certainly, if anyone from Current Aviation wants to contact us at the show and tell us more about what you're doing, we're open to it and we'll tell our listeners.
2: And Ben, if you'll take this one, it's from Emily in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey guys, my boyfriend and I listen to you faithfully. He works for an airline and I work for a bank and you can probably figure out which airline and which bank. But I continue to be surprised at the amounts of promotions for airline affinity credit cards and the very generous bonuses they're giving, 50 to 60,000 miles is the norm. And I have to wonder, is there anyone out there who doesn't already have one of these cards who still wants one?
1: Well, Emily, I I chuckled when I read your question because I thought the same thing, actually. But I think that your husband's airline and your bank – probably recognize that there are actually a lot of people who don't have the cards yet. And even though affinity cards, meaning credit cards that have some sort of brand affinity on them, are very popular in the US, their penetration rate in terms of number of customers who hold credit cards still has a lot of room left in it. What that means is they probably benefit from continuing to offer these great bonus options for new people. The other thing is, Charlotte especially is a growing city. So imagine somebody moving from New York where maybe they weren't in the credit card program of the Charlotte hub-based airline, And now they get transferred to Charlotte or they take a new job in Charlotte. They're probably really appreciative of this kind of bonus since they may be starting a new relationship, even though they've been flying for a long time and using a credit card of maybe a competitor for a while. So as odd as it seems that it seems like everyone who wants an airline card should have one by now, That's just not the facts of the situation and banks and airlines have learned that continual regular promotion of these things generates new customers. So why not keep doing it? Great question though.
2: Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I look at my household, recent college graduates getting credit cards. I mean, just that market ended up itself and they love to travel. So, um, there's a target market right there that you can just keep going after because there's no no end in sight for young people entering into the workforce and getting their
1: own credit cards. That makes sense. Well, Chris, we'll keep trucking and go right on to finer wine. And this is from Jacob in Lakewood, Ohio. Delta just lost a longtime customer due to a long delay we figured we'd hit up in the Sky Club since we have an infant with us and needed a place my wife could feed our child and have something to eat herself. Since we're Delta Platinum card holders, we figured it'd be worth the $40 per person. Unfortunately, we didn't have the actual card. It's on our boarding pass, on our digital wallet, and our app. But it wasn't good enough for the rude front desk attendant. Quite honestly, it's sad to know that when you're in the most need of Delta support, they're just not going to be there for their customers. We're going to take our travel business and our card loyalty somewhere that wants it. Maybe to Charlotte in that new credit card deal. I threw (laughs) that in. (laughs) Chris, is this a fine or a wine?
2: So I was confused at first with this one, Ben, because there's a Delta Amex Platinum card. And then there's Delta Platinum Medallion level. And so I wasn't sure what Platinum Jacob was talking about. I think he's a Platinum Amex cardholder. And that must get you some discounted rate into the Sky Club. And I think this is a wine of sorts because you don't have the card and anybody could have a digital version of something on their wallet that maybe is expired. He could have called the Amex desk and someone could have Verified, I guess, but but this is somewhat of a whine in the context of if there's a discounted rate available to use the Sky Club, showing your Amex card. Generally, you need to have the card. Um, It's kind of hard for a a a club representative working a busy desk to give you special treatment to get entry. So I I view this as a little bit of a whine, not a huge whine, but I, I don't know
1: if this is a reason to change credit cards, or airlines over it. I agree with you, Chris. And I too thought of this as a wine, but I'm also willing to bet that five years from now, if, We listen back to this podcast. We'll say, why did we say that was a wine? Who uses cards anymore, right? I can see the world moving away from physical cards to have to show, but it's clear that the Delta Sky Clubs aren't there yet. So if you know you need the card, have the card. So with that, Chris, I'll give my shout-out, and maybe surprisingly to some, my shout-out this week goes to the BA Euroflyer. That's the name that IAG has chosen for their low-cost subsidiary in Gatwick, and listeners of the show know that both Chris and I have been very skeptical of this strategy. We talked about the pilot challenges they had with this, and why would IAG be adopting a strategy that has failed at a lot of other airlines, but they're going for it. And now they have a name, BA Euroflyer, sort of piggybacking off the name Cityflyer Flyer that they had. And they're using the name BA in the name. So my shout-out goes to them because even though I'm not sure it's the right thing, I hate when airlines fail. So I want them to do a great job <laughs> in Gatwick.
2: So your shout-out's forward-looking. Mine's going to be nostalgic a bit. My shout-out is to the Eastern Air Shuttle which became the Trump Shuttle, then the U.S. Airway Shuttle, then the American Airlines Shuttle. This was a pioneering concept back in 1961 when Eastern rolled out hourly service between New York and Boston, and then later there was a New York, D.C. version. It was known for its dedicated check-in, last-minute boarding, and other services that made it a favorite with business travelers. So 60 years after its birth, it will be retiring as American plans to cease operating the service, and eliminating the shuttle product between LaGuardia and Boston Logan in January. And JetBlue will operate the service between those two airports. So, proud history to the shuttle. Sorry to see it go, but it's also part of a changing industry.
1: Chris, that's a great shout-out. And when I saw that news, you know what I thought of? I thought of the ridiculous number of meetings you and I both attended when at U.S. Airways, (laughs) talking about whether or not we had the right bagel on the shuttle. That's right. (laughs)
2: Lots of VIPs on those shuttles over the years that also caused some trouble, too. But uh, <laughs> That's right. Anyway, with that, let's call it a week and uh, wish everyone a, a good one until we talk again next week.
1: Have a great week.
0: See you next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.